Hey, good day, everybody. Welcome to Mining Stock Daily. This is Trevor Hall, and today is Friday, November 15th. We have another in-depth interview to wrap up our week. We welcome Bruno Kaiser. He's the Managing Director and Head of Metals and Mining from uh, De Hardin in uh, Toronto. And a great conversation about the impact of passive funds in the mining sector. So you will want to pay attention to that closely. If you are listening to this interview on Amazon Alexa, you are listening to an abbreviated version. And obviously the full uh, interview can be found practically anywhere else you receive your podcasts. One quick mention to our sponsors. Thank you so much to the Association for Mineral Exploration, Integra Resources, Pacific Empire Minerals, and Western Copper and Gold for your continued support of Mining Stock Daily. Really appreciate it, and uh, we really couldn't do it without you. So without further ado, uh, this is just a wonderful conversation about uh, not only the impact of investors and kind of uh, the lack of capital going into the industry, but also uh, what the inflow of ETF uh, capital means for the uh, junior small cap space and also how the rules have changed that we all need to be aware of, whether you're a company or a speculator. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Bruno. Have yourself a great weekend. We'll talk to you again on Monday. And welcome to Mining Stock Daily. This is Trevor Hall, and today I am joined by Bruno Kaiser. He is the Managing Director and Head of Metals and Mining for Dayhardin's Capital Markets, and he is based in Toronto. Bruno, good to chat with you once again. Welcome to Mining Stock Daily. How are you uh, this, uh, well, I guess I can say holiday season already. Yeah, unfortunately, it feels like it with the weather. I am very good, <laughs> and it's a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, we are going to talk a lot about the impact of passive funds in junior mining, well, in mining in general, but also how the investor has changed in mining. Uh, you've been speaking pretty frequently about this, uh, well, since actually almost a year ago when I first met you when we were on a panel together in New York. Uh, but before we kind of get into that conversation, can you give our listeners a little bit of a rundown of your background and kind of how you found yourself in the position you are in specifically within mining? Sure. Um, uh, so uh, I've been in the business for 27 years. I have um, a Bachelor of Commerce, uh, an MBA, and a humanities degree. And I sort of found my way into mining in the early 90s by accident because I speak a number of languages and travel well. Uh, and at the time, I was working for CIBC World Markets, which was called CIBC Wood Gundy. And uh, they said, you know, you're perfect for mining. You have a you have an analytical, uh, scientific type of bend to you, and you can pick it up, and you're the right character for the industry. So uh, it, it found me sort of by accident. I started in research for a number of uh, years. I was at CIBC for about five years, and then moved on to investment banking, um, uh, first with Rothschilds uh, and then Morgan Stanley in London, uh, where I was actually not focused on mining. I was focused on more or less every industry other than the financial services group, <clears throat> pardon me. And um, I was there for, as I said, about five years, moved back to Canada, uh, a national bank financial where there were some old Wood Gundy ties and um, helped uh, helped drive the, uh, the growth of the business there. Um, and then moved on to Paradigm Capital, which was a very mining-focused uh, boutique and led the mining initiative there. I was there for about seven years, uh, at which point I was recruited here to uh, build up the mining franchise at Desjardins, which is uh, a little bit of an unknown financial institution in Canada because it's a it's a cooperative uh, structure, but 
size-wise, it is about the same size as CIBC. So it's about the fourth largest bank or or equivalent to the fourth largest public bank in, in Canada with um, almost $300 billion in assets and uh, 46,000 employees. So it's a large institution and historically has always had some ties to the mining industry, but um, my job has been to, uh, to deepen and broaden it. So I've been here for about two, two and a half years now. Okay. And when did you start uh, with CIBC within the kind of the mining spectrum? What, what year was that? 92. Ninety-two. Uh, so you've seen you, you've seen a couple cycles. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Quite a Can few. you like? Yeah, and I'm just kind of curious. Uh, I'm I'm sure many of our listeners who are maybe maybe have not been following the commodities and precious metals and mining industry for that long. Um, can you kind of walk us through uh, where we're at now uh, in this this cycle we're at uh, as compared to previous cycles you've experienced? Well. Uh, I think first of all, let's let's predicate this by saying where we are in in the gold cycle, as differentiated from the the other mined commodities, um, and the other most important one would be copper. Um, I think where we are with respect to gold as the commodity itself, separating it from the underlying companies that produce the gold, I'd say we're in a fairly strong stable to bullish environment. If I look back at it historically, uh, there was definitely a period of time and perhaps uh, a number of cycles or periods of time since I've started in the industry where gold was very much forgotten. And of course, the late 90s uh, comes to mind, um, you know, 99 to sort of 02. Um, and and even I would say in the, in the commodity downturn of, you know, 2012 to, you know, this year, uh, it wasn't forgotten as much it was it was very much tossed aside in the late 90s so right now from a commodity price perspective i'd say we're we're quite healthy um, obviously we'd always like to see it higher and stronger um, but we're at a point where those that are in production are are making strong cash flows balance sheets are healthy and they can live quite well with the current price that we're in um, and and if you, of course, it's always difficult to say what really drives the gold price. Many people have tried, and few are very successful at predicting it. But if you just generically say that it's uh, it's an insurance policy against the financial world as it is itself a currency, I'd say that um, maybe troublingly so, the rest of the world is, has got some tremors that we should be keeping an eye out on, and, and that would bode well for gold. Um, with respect to uh, copper and, and other base metals, um, you know the 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 story for for those mined commodities i think is very interesting now with the context of people talking about climate change and and trying to reduce dependency on on fossil fuels uh with every degree that we try to focus away from fossil fuels we need to intensify our focus on mined commodities and i'm not sure that that is completely sunk into the world uh at large um and, and so I think that bodes well for copper in the really long term. It's really hard to say on the short term because it's much more affected by, you know, trade discussions between China and the U.S. and, and the industrial cycle. But from a super cycle perspective, um, copper, nickel, cobalt, um, you know, even zinc, I think, should be, uh, should be, should be quite strong and healthy. And, uh, and, and they're simply not being explored for as readily as they were in the past, and therefore the supply side is probably going to be more constrained, you know, on the longer term. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking specifically about uh, gold bull markets uh, and just kind of referring back to what we've seen 
thus far in 2019. I mean, we saw gold, uh, the you know, prices really kind of move up, uh, putting up as much as $250, $275 uh, per ounce of gold. Uh, obviously, we're seeing a little bit of a uh, correction and consolidation right now as we speak. Uh, I, I guess referring back to previous upward swings in gold price uh, that you've been a part of, um, has it typically kind of gone you know, gangbusters up as we saw in 2019 with a correction. Uh, is this somewhat of a normal observation from, from your experience? Um, or, uh, have you ever seen a time where it's just slow and steady upward growth as most, you know, obviously any share price or any uh, spot price would really want to see? Yeah. I, you know, gold is funny. Uh, it 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 is a very um, you know if we if we sort of humanize it uh, it's a very emotional commodity uh and so it tends to have violent moves upwards and downwards uh and um and you know historically you know at least over the course of my career <clears throat> this has uh, this has been a very strong movement upwards off of you know through where it's been in 2019 but we saw similar in the end of um or in the early you know part of 2011 i would say um it wasn't uh it, you know, it was it was a similarly strong move. We saw the same sort of move in in 07. We saw it off the bounce in 08, um, and then of course in 05, 06, it was a very prolonged period of, of near, you know, steady state upward uh, upward drive. So, what um, what we see here is not is not uncommon. I'd say it's very common for gold when it moves to move in in rushes. Um, what I would say if we if we um, translate it over to the capital markets and to gold stocks, what we haven't seen this time is the corresponding move in gold stocks. Yes, they've gone up, but if you look at the sort of exuberance and the the uh, the flurry of new issuances and the um, the pace of of activity in the on the corporate sector and and amongst investors to hustle into the sector. We just haven't seen it this year, and that's one of the reasons. You know, I've, I've sort of observed it for the last couple of years, and was wondering whether it was a function of a flat gold market. It wasn't so much negative and, and bearish. It was kind of flat, really, over the last three, four years, and that's what that's what prompted my interest in looking deeper to see what the malaise is all about. Yeah, and that's a excuse me. That's actually a really good transition into what we really want to talk about, and that's the impact of passive funds. Um, Give us a, a, a kind of a, a thirty thousand foot overview of what you have found out as far as investors' involvement in passive funds rather than individual mining stocks, and why is this so significant for the mining industry? Well, I'm, I'm going to take a quick step back um, and and attribute this to the capital markets at large because it's not a phenomenon that is solely affecting the mining industry, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment why it, it impacts the mining industry quite. Uh, quite starkly. Um, for about the past 10 years or so, um, there has been a very steady, very secular move away from actively managed funds and into passively managed funds. I'm looking at a chart, and if you've seen the presentation, you've seen the presentation that we sort of jointly worked on together. I've got a chart that goes from 1995 um, to, you know, 2018 and 1995, the assets under management and uh, passive funds 
was about 5%, under 5%. And, um, and now it's estimated to be about 50%. And that is a straight slope. There's basically never been a drop down. It's a steady rise. Um, and, and of course, it's coming at the expense of, well, two sources. Net new funds tend to be moving into passive funds. And then there's a shift out of active funds. And by active funds, I mean where there is a portfolio manager or a team uh, that are making active investment decisions. They do research on stocks and, you know, they may have a strategy, be it value or growth or whatever, but, you know, they're actively managing it. Passive funds are, by definition, Exactly that. They are passive. And the most uh, widely um, probably engaged in method of passive passive investing now is the ETF, which is an exchange-traded fund. And what that is is basically a fund that, you know, let's call it trades like a stock that mimics the the investments in that fund are – stocks that are components of an index typically. So for example, one of the longest, uh, longest, um, uh, you know, uh, ETFs in existence is the uh, spiders, which is a S and P 500 and it's, uh, it's an S and P 500 ETF and the ETF simply mimics the 500 stocks by weight allocation in the ETF to the S and P 500. And every time that ETF is bought or sold, the underlying constituents have to be bought and sold. And so there, um, the, the need for there to be a very low degree of tracking error between the ETF and the underlying index is important. So what that means is that ETFs don't typically get created in uh, stocks or in indices that have relatively illiquid underlying components. And typically, the relationship between size of a company and liquidity is is a positive one in the sense that larger companies are more liquid. So you'll tend to see ETFs favor larger companies. And, you know, that's a bit of a subjective uh, measure because what exactly is a large company? I think, you know, with time that that almost by definition grows because as the amount of uh, money in ETFs increases, you know, there's more money chasing the ETFs, so therefore they have to have more liquid uh, underlying underlying components in order to minimize their tracking errors. So, so that impacts the capital markets at large, and I think that's partially, you know, to be explained why we see the very, very large mega cap companies, the Apples and the Microsofts and stuff. You know, they are massively owned by basically every ETF on the planet. And uh, they beget investment because they're large in some cases. Um, you know, I'm really oversimplifying things, but the problem is also it impacts the companies and the industries at the opposite end of the spectrum, which is that small cap stocks, micro cap stocks get ignored because they don't uh, attract ETF money. And the problem is, is that those remaining fund managers that are active fund managers, in large part, uh, there's a huge component of their investments that you know, are the same investment uh, constituents as the ETFs. Uh, they don't tend to deviate massively from them. There certainly are those fund managers that do. But let's say that there's a 50 to 70% overlap of what an active fund manager is going to own and what an ETF is going to contain. That means that at the end of the day, the market at large is is very rapidly ignoring the smaller capitalization end of the spectrum. Now, that impacts every industry, as I said, but the problem with mining is, is that we have a dis- in the, on the TSX, for example, there are over 1,100 listed mining and exploration companies, TSX and TSXV. 
the overwhelming number of those are far too small to be ETF and passive fund eligible. Uh, and as a consequence, they are also really not uh, being looked at by active fund managers. And therein lies the problem. First of all, um, ETFs don't participate in capital raisings. You know, they only participate in secondary trading. So if a company comes to market, even if it's a company that's a component of an ETF, um, an ETF is not putting in a subscription order in to, to be part of that capital raising. They have to only participate once those funds, those shares hit the, the trading register. And, and then, of course, the, the impact is, is that, uh, you know, now with almost 50% of the market being, being passive, um, y- you know, there's a, a much, on a, you know, uh, yes, the equity capital markets pool has grown as a, as a, as a whole, but not as quickly as the ETF uh, drive to passive funds has grown. So the net net is that it has created, in my opinion, a smaller pool of capital that's, uh, that's allocated by active fund managers. And then they themselves have to drive it into a smaller number of companies. And that's, that's been, um, if you trace it right back to where I said the uh, activity on the capital raising front has not been as as active as it was in compared to previous gold price moves, I, I attribute it to that. The long-winded answer, I know, but it requires some back explanation. Well, and, I, and I'm trying to think of an appropriate way, because I, I think there's a number of different directions on which you can approach this. And I think, do you approach it from the investor side of the spectrum, or do you approach it from the, the small cap uh, junior company side on how to make things better? Um, but I think what really hit home and what kind of what made me thinking a little bit more, as you said, there's over 1,100 companies publicly traded in Toronto on the TSX and the venture alone. But as an as an investor, I mean, I, that just screams at me. Well, it's like, well, shit, Bruno, how do you how do you decide what company is different from the others, especially in these small cap type of junior companies, when the actual industry work cycle is we produce these geologists. They go find a project, that company fails, now these geologists have to go find another land package, uh, do the same cycle, bring in other geologists to work. And so as the as the as the geologists in the in in the industry continue to build, and as projects fail as they're prone to do, and they move on to other projects, but yet the original companies still stay publicly traded, we're just exponentially growing the number of companies that are being traded without any movement whatsoever. And so, you know, can is the investor at fault here? Can you blame the investor for passively wanting to invest money when the when the breakdown of how the industry actually operates is one that's convoluted, uh, it's saturated, and it's hard to decipher which which companies have good projects or not? Um, yeah, uh, it's it's always been a challenge when you're looking at the exploration side of companies of the of the of the investment spectrum to see and determine which companies are going to be successful in their programs and find you know value adding projects. I think uh, look, it's there's a harsh reality that we all have to face, and this absolutely affects everybody. It it impacts um, you know people in my position in my industry on the investment dealer side certainly impacts investors and obviously it impacts uh, companies. Um, And that is, if the premise is correct, and that is that the capital pool has shrunk um, and, and is simply no, the public capital pool, right? Not in jump, but the, you know, the, the pool that can invest in public companies. 
has has narrowed its focus. Let's say it's not shrunk, but by by need of of survival, it's narrowed its focus into larger companies. I think what that means is that there's simply going to be a Darwinian. Uh, speeding up of a Darwinian event where a great number of those 1,100 companies are going to need to cease to exist because if they haven't added value, if they haven't found projects, they're not going to attract capital and they can't go on. I mean, they can maybe fund themselves through friends and family for a while, but realistically speaking, with the cost of exploration and uh, compliance that companies face these days, that's hard to that's hard to to successfully find things. Secondly, is by definition, then, if the companies that are attracting company are larger ones, they would be looking for larger projects, right? So the feedstock of exploration targets that they're looking at juniors to be successful in finding are going to need to be larger. And and so maybe I'm just hypothesizing here, and I don't mean for people hearing this to to, to think that I'm I'm dumping on the whole sector and saying this is this is doomed to failure, but but maybe it is that you know the world simply doesn't have a need for 30,000, 40,000 ounce gold producers anymore. Maybe the reality is is in order to be a viable public company with the as I said with the costs of compliance and the ever increasing burdens of regulations and and uh, um, and and the need to be relevant to to investors on a public sense, you know, maybe that is you've got to be a hundred, you know, start at a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand ounces. Uh, and if you're an exploration company, it means you better be looking for things that can you 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 better drill to kill. In other words, if you're looking and finding things that are looking like they're tiny projects, do yourself a favor and move on. That could be what the markets are telling us, and that would thin out the and that would from one end it would thin out those 1,100 companies into a more realistically successful group, uh, the Darwinian effect, shall we say? And then on the other end of that, uh, strategically speaking, we'll see more um, uh, M&A combinations that'll that'll grow the companies and make them more apt to be investor friendly. Yeah, no, that's I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I do want to bring that up as well. I, I uh, kind of backtrack. It's it's funny you and you and I, you know, people in this industry, like we've made a living, and we used to watching these stories unfold every day, and things change every day. But you know, for people who aren't directly involved in in mining or junior mining and resources that literally just don't have the time to give to follow these when things change, like you know, it's it's no surprise to me that you know if they do want to play in this space, that they they will go to the ETF because that's probably a safer bet for the time that they can allocate uh, with right. their own capital. Right. So I don't think that's, and, and it's the same for every other industry. Yeah. 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 Very, you're very much true. Uh, no anomaly there, I guess. Uh, so let's talk about, uh, we kind of talked about this. We need to kind of downsize as far as how many companies are smaller companies need to get bigger. Uh, an appropriate way to do that would be some sort of merger together. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, smaller, uh, smaller projects, but, uh, uh, a higher quantitative, uh, higher, higher quantity of smaller projects could be a way to go. Um, you know, I know Rick rule has been preaching this for years about how, you know, we, there needs to be a come to Jesus moment with a lot of these companies. But I, I think that's it's always just been talk. We actually haven't necessarily seen a big shift there yet. But in your mind, what's it going to take uh, for these companies, specifically management companies of juniors, to be like, you know, let's take a step back and figure out where these uh, partnerships and uh, positions might actually lie? 
Well, um, I think on the <laughs> one hand, yes, <laughs> that's, a, that's a complicated question because the answer, I think, is complicated and very unclear. Uh, and I, I wish I really had a you know, definitive answer. But in the spirit of being an investment banker who always pretends to know it all, right? That's not what we're accused of. Um, I will uh, I'll give it a shot. Um, you know, I think this Darwinian process is going to continue, um, you know, absent an absolutely, you know, mammoth move in the gold price where what will happen if history is any guide is that the greed factor comes back in and anything with a ticker might attract uh, retail capital, uh, you know, and you start hearing, um, you know, tips again from your dentist and your taxi driver and that that type of thing. So that can always happen, which can keep things alive and moving along. Uh, but in the absence of that, I think we're, it'll simply be the slow weaning out and attrition where people leave the industry. They don't bother starting up public companies to chase the, um, you know, the geochemical anomaly type of thing. Um, and then, uh, and then the successful ones, I think the model that we've seen recently are those that can very professionally, and on a very mutually trusting basis, um, negotiate and manage relationships with larger companies that will take typically less than 20%, 19.9% or less, uh, and, and, and act as a bit of a funding protector uh, and lead order. Um, and, and that has been a model that has been successfully employed by companies. I think maybe the most uh, well-known of larger companies that has employed that model is Agnico Eagle. Um, they've, done, they've done a tremendous job over the course of decades now of, of um, seeding or, or rather nourishing junior companies and, and working collaboratively with them to help them be successful because if they're successful, then Agnico can be successful. And I think other companies have taken that on and are trying to emulate that in some, some sense. Um, there are other situations, like if I take, for example, Atlantic Gold, which was a very recent success story having been purchased by St. Barbara uh, this summer. Atlantic Gold had a, uh, a very wealthy controlling shareholder that functioned in the same manner as a, as a in the in the same manner as they were you know there consistently to help backstop funding um, gave confidence to the market that there was that there was something there and it was a real anchor for the company so that's going to be necessary uh, going forward and it might require two two and three of those types of relationships so it means a smaller shareholder register where you have you may have two or three uh, controlling parties if you will um, and and it it changes the nature of things. You know, you don't have as many retail investors as you used to because uh, going back to the ETF uh, situation, part of the drive to ETFs has been a nature a change in the nature of investment dealers, advisors, banks, whatever you will, where, you know, they have all purchased fund management um, uh, groups and over the course of years, and they have uh, themselves driven investors into funds as opposed to encouraging them to buy individual stocks. So the days of a retail broker, which we now call private wealth advisors, you know, calling you up and saying, here's a really good stock idea seem to be dying 
partially for compliance reasons. I think banks don't like to have their uh, private wealth advisors uh, recommending individual stocks because as much as they can go and do well, they can do poorly. And then there's a risk of losing the assets of, of uh, first of all, the asset base shrinks. And then a bigger risk is that you might lose the client or, or face a lawsuit or something where they may claim that you didn't do proper know your client investment recommendations. So it's a lot safer to drive people into funds, especially funds that you manage. So that's been a part of the part of the equation. Um, so if retail starts to thin out on one end of the share register, it has to be made up in another way. And if projects are good, they will find money. I just think that there are a lot of companies out there with projects that aren't good enough to, yeah. to attract the capital. Yeah. Uh, I've taken up a lot of your time and I, I do have one more question. It's just kind of a summary question. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to take this presentation and put it up on our website so people can have access to it, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, but it, um, in in the summary, the last bullet point, uh, you write that the goals are the the end goals are still feasible, but it appears that the rules have changed and companies need to adapt. Right. If in, to summary, I know we spent about twenty five minutes talking about how this is how this all changed, but what is the most important important aspect of change that junior small cap resource companies need to be aware of right now? I think they simply need to be aware and, and, and realize that the investor pool has shrunk. And so if that is the case, if the investor pool is smaller, you can't go about it in the same way as you used to. And that's what I mean by companies needing to adapt. Um, you know, if, if uh, you had the same sort of supply and demand dynamic between investors and, and, and companies then you could go on but that's changed dramatically there's so many fewer investors specialist funds have disappeared retail has disappeared um, and and generalists seem to be moving up cap as I'd mentioned so uh, if that's the case you know be honest in your assessment of the market and adapt your approach accordingly yeah. Bruno thank you so much for your time it's great to have you on the show and speak with you once again always appreciate your conversations and the uh and the feedback. Uh, if there is a way for people to reach out to you for any further questions, uh, would you mind sharing that information? Sure. My email is bruno.kaiser at desjardins.com. That's D-E-S-J-A-R-D-I-N-S.com. All right. Bruno, have yourself a great weekend. We'll talk to you again and uh, be well, my friend. Thank you very much, Trevor. Keep uh, doing the great work you're doing. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate that.